I'm Gabriel Spitzer, and this is Transmission. Today's episode, Stretched. Hospitals and healthcare workers have been bracing for this key moment in the pandemic when the number of really sick patients outstrips our resources to treat them. And a new model suggests that could be coming soon in Washington state as soon as next week. By April 2nd, we could have more intensive care patients than ICU beds. The projections come from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation in Seattle. And as we turn our attention to how a health system stretched to the limit will cope with the surge in COVID-19 patients, this new analysis offers some reasons for both hope and concern. We caught up with Dr. Christopher Murray, director of the Institute. We expect the national peak of the epidemic to be in the second week of April. We expect the peak here in Washington to be a little bit later, around about the 19th of um, April. And then it will start to decline, but we will continue to have cases and deaths right through May. So is that pretty good evidence that we can expect um, fairly stringent measures around social distancing to continue through summertime? Well, it's very hard to imagine that anybody's going to to stop social distancing measures when things are getting worse. And I think the big question comes, will social distancing measures stay in place once we hit the peak and things start to improve? The problem there is if they take away social distancing measures, then we'll go back to community-wide transmission and the curve will sort of be the seesaw, which clearly we don't want. And so for people who can't see the visualization, I mean, part of what you have are curves and lines representing capacity and projected need. And if you look at the intensive care beds, it looks like those lines cross, meaning that the the need for ICU beds exceeds the capacity in Washington as early as next week. There's going to be demand above license capacity. And then one of the other challenges here of trying to scale up the potential excess ICU demand is just the, the human resources required to support those. Even if we can get the physical beds and the ventilators, finding, you know, ICU nurses, for example, is, is a big issue. Particularly if they start getting sick. Yes. And that comes back to the whole issue of personal protective equipment. So in terms of the beds, ICU beds, ventilators, how does Washington State stack up against the rest of the country? Well, because we seem to have a slower growing epidemic, and that might be because of early behavioral change. The, the trajectory of the epidemic here is on a slower curve than New York or Georgia or Louisiana, where they're shooting up. And so I think in some ways, having that slower growth, later peak, uh, puts us in a better position than a place like Louisiana, where they're going to be in way over capacity uh, multiples over ICU capacity in a much worse, at least at least in the current trajectory, than we will be. Even so, the Institute's modeling suggests that Washington could have more than 1,400 deaths by summer. Nationwide, it could be more than 80,000, though both of those numbers have a range of uncertainty around them. Now, if you heard about another recent model last week from British researchers at Imperial College, these new mortality numbers actually sound pretty low. That earlier study projected as many as one to two million deaths nationwide. Murray says his analysis is pretty different. 
it assumes strict social distancing stays in place for a while, for one, and it plugs in a lot of real-world data that the earlier model didn't have. But there's a big caveat, too. That British model predicted a whole second surge in the fall, something Murray's study does not account for. Yes, and in fact, uh, you know, one of their models showed almost all the mortalities in the fall. Now, uh, that's a real risk, but we really don't know enough about COVID-19 to be that confident about that. Um, And the reason I say that is uh, if you go back to SARS-1, we also at the time had models that told us there would be a huge second wave because in the first wave, only a very small fraction got infected. The second wave never came and we never really knew why. Now, that's no reason to be complacent. It just says the future is hard to be sure about. Um, so protecting from future reinfection will be a very big issue. And, and that'll be a lot of where the effort will need to go. Christopher Murray directs the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Even if Washington's capacity crunch isn't as bad as some other states, it'll still be a huge strain on hospitals. Will Stone is with the NPR Science Desk, and he's a contributor to KNKX. He's been checking in with local hospitals, and he gives us a sense of what the looming surge feels like there. I'm hearing about a lot of preparation at hospitals uh, throughout western Washington. Uh, Many are clearing out units that were used for other kinds of medical care now that they've canceled operations and adding beds that can take COVID patients. Um, I'm hearing of some hospitals where they're literally doubling the capacity and the number of beds to meet this expected surge in COVID-19 patients. And uh, obviously, this is good that we're prepared for that, but there are concerns that you can have a lot of beds, but if you don't have people to staff it, it doesn't really meet all the needs. Yeah. What, what is your sense of what the bottlenecks are? Is it beds? Is it staffing? Is it personal protective equipment? I think all three, but at the moment, the personal protective equipment and then, of course, how that links in with the staffing are key concerns. Already we're hearing about healthcare workers, nurses, even some doctors getting sick. And this is still early days. We haven't hit this surge yet. And they're doing their best to use the PPE, but we all know that that is in short supply, that a lot of hospitals are having to you know, put in place new protocols that would not be normal uh, in any other circumstance, like reusing masks, uh, reusing gloves. If there aren't enough protective equipment, then you start to lose staff. And I do hear from nurses who say that they already feel the strain on staffing. And that's just very concerning because we know there's a lot more to come. Are you getting a sense of individual uh, facilities that are either in better or worse shape as far as preparation for the surge? It it definitely appears that Harborview and the UW system has been very forward-thinking on this, that they are not at capacity yet. They also have lots of residents who can chip in and help, who they will be uh, most likely asking to come into the ERs and the ICUs. And this would be even residents who maybe aren't trained in those areas, but in, you know, other specialties, they'll bring them uh, onto the floor to work with these patients. I I have heard some concerns from nurses who work at Swedish 
and say that already hospital staffing was an issue there uh, even before uh, COVID-19 came here. And there's just a lot of anxiety that we won't have the the hands on deck to be able to tend to these patients. And it's important for people to know that uh, these COVID-19 patients, when they get quite sick, they require a lot of care. I mean, sometimes one-to-one care. And you've mentioned anxiety. What exactly are people telling you about how they're feeling? You know, I think it varies depending on who you talk to. Some, a lot, Of course, a lot of these nurses, especially if they work in the ER, they, they are prepared for stressful situations. They went into this line of work because they handle those situations well. But I would say even a nurse I spoke to who had actually gone to Africa about five years ago and worked on Ebola there, and now she works in Bellingham, Washington. She says, you know, I had better personal protective equipment when I was in Africa than I do now at the hospital. And she also talks to nurses in in the hospital with her and tells them, it's okay if you're scared. And it's okay, frankly, if you don't want to come to work because you didn't sign up to work in this kind of very dangerous situation where you don't have the proper gear. People are kind of shocked that they're in a situation where they aren't able to stay 100% safe. I mean, we've seen some near worst case scenarios in other parts of the world when it comes to healthcare capacity and the hospitals being overwhelmed, places like northern Italy. And I've heard that invoked a bunch of times, like, you know, that could be us. Are we getting a sense yet about how likely we are to hit you know, a real catastrophe when it comes to that stuff? Or does it seem like there's a pretty good chance that we'll be able to meet the moment? Certainly, even a week ago, we were taking the approach that we could be the next northern Italy with just huge influx of patients all at once and having to ration care. All of that planning is still going on. I think there is a sense that perhaps because we had this come earlier and we have been relatively aggressive in getting ready, they've been emptying out hospitals, even hospitals down in the South Sound, they've emptied them out so that if there is a surge of patients in Seattle, they can send them down to Olympia if need be. There's been a lot of that kind of uh, chess work going on in the background, and I think we are a little bit more optimistic that the surge won't be quite as bad as we thought it might have been a couple weeks ago because of that. But of course, it's just too early to tell because we haven't seen the full uh, impact of the social distancing measures that we put in place. Well, uh, we appreciate your reporting on it, Will. Thank you very much. Thank you, Gabe. Will Stone of NPR Science Desk and a KNKX contributor. Besides beds and masks and doctors, there's another bottleneck, testing. The shortage of testing capacity has meant we really don't know how many Americans are sick or carrying the virus and spreading it to others. That is slowly starting to change, and as tests become more available, some healthcare providers are trying to find the coronavirus in populations most at risk from an outbreak. KNKX reporter Will James watched one of those efforts in Seattle. Dave Rodriguez tilts his head back. A healthcare worker in a mask and gown takes what looks like an extra long Q-tip and sticks it in one of Rodriguez's nostrils. It goes in farther and farther and farther until it goes all the way through the nasal cavity and touches the back of Rodriguez's throat. 
The whole thing takes about five seconds. So what did the test actually feel like when it was going on? It stung a little bit. It wasn't bad, yeah, it wasn't too bad, but it did sting a little bit, yeah. This test is happening on a Seattle sidewalk, right outside the building where Rodriguez works. He's a case manager for the nonprofit Plymouth Housing. He helps oversee 31 residents who used to be homeless and now live here, but still need a lot of help with everyday life. So what made you want to get tested today? Uh, there's a chance, given some of the symptoms, that my life partner and her son may have been infected. And so between that and the fact that I have a slight tickle in the back of my throat and have been having sort of hot flashes for a couple of days, she said she'd go ahead and test me. What made you want to be sure of whether or not you had the, the virus? Well, I work with folks who rely on me to be here and be healthy for them. So I just want to make sure I'm healthy. This is the first outing of a mobile testing clinic meant to detect COVID-19 in some of Seattle's most vulnerable residents and the people who work with them. It's run by a Seattle hospital, Swedish Medical Center, out of a van that used to be a mobile mammogram clinic. The words Swedish Breast Care Express are still emblazoned on the side. How do you feel now that you've been tested? Well, it'll be interesting to find out whether or not I've been exposed. I mean, I hope that it comes back negative. But uh, it's sort of nice to know that I can find out. Rodriguez is told he'll get results in four to five days. With the test over, he puts a face mask over his nose and mouth and starts shepherding some of his residents through the same process. The reason all this testing is going on here is that Plymouth houses many of Seattle's most vulnerable people. So I'm Paul Lambros. I'm the CEO of Plymouth Housing. We at Plymouth house over a thousand folks that have come out of homelessness and a lot of them with physical, mental health, behavioral challenges. And so we thought if this gets bad, it's really going to affect our tenant population. Part of that is because a lot of those tenants live in buildings where social distancing isn't realistic. People have a unit. They may have a microwave or fridge in the room, some little kitchenette, but a lot of them are sharing common bathrooms and common kitchens. So yes, in this building we're in front of today and why Swedish is out here is because it's a building that we're concerned about. Another concern is that a lot of Plymouth residents have COPD diabetes, hepatitis, HIV, conditions that put them at risk for the worst complications from COVID-19. But not many of the people lined up on the sidewalk actually end up getting that swab up the nose. It's a pretty high bar to get tested for the coronavirus. Can you just say who you are? Yep, Dr. Michelle Arnold, and I'm the Executive Medical Director of Swedish Rehabilitation and Performance Medicine. Like a lot of staff here, she's been drafted into the COVID-19 response. There are some key symptoms that help us drive decision-making around whether testing is imminent. Majority of those are around fever, um, anything greater than 100.4, acute, uncontrollable, severe cough, as, and shortness of breath. That's what healthcare workers look for when they decide who to expend a test on. When Dr. Arnold says this, I'm wondering, wait, What's the point of only testing people who are already sick? If you're sick, you're supposed to be staying away from other people. But there's more and more evidence that people who feel healthy are unknowingly spreading the coronavirus. Aren't those the people we should be looking for? So that's a great question. We're pretty convinced as well that there is the potential to spread viral particles before showing symptoms. 
So the most important things that we can do here in Washington State, wash our hands, don't touch our faces, and making sure surfaces in your immediate vicinity that are touched commonly are appropriately disinfected. In other words, we don't know who's carrying the coronavirus, so we all have to act as if we are. What, uh, what made you want to get tested today? Well, I figured I better because I, I got COPD. And I go, well, I better play it safe. Curtis Martin lives in a different Plymouth housing building. His social worker drove him here to get tested because COPD is a respiratory illness that puts him at risk. Martin sits down in a folding chair. A healthcare worker puts a stethoscope to Martin's back and listens for a crackling sound that could indicate COVID-19 in his lungs. Then the healthcare worker slips a monitor on Martin's finger to check his blood oxygen level. It's 96, within the normal range. Martin has no fever. He's told he's not sick. There's no reason to test for COVID-19. He gets up, steps aside, away from people bustling on the sidewalk waiting to get tested. As, a, as someone with COPD, how do you feel about this whole, the whole virus? I'm a little nervous about it. Cause I, I'm, I'm like one of the people that are 80 years old and they're croaking once they get the thing. <laughs> they say you got underlying issues and, the, and it settles in your lungs. The COPD's a lung thing, I'm going, oh boy. I even, when I answer my door, I go, just step back a little bit. <laughs> he knows he's not in the clear. Even though he's not sick now, someone could give him the virus at any time, even someone who looks healthy. He wishes more of his neighbors got tested. I couldn't believe out of our building, only two of us showed up. And I'm going, what a bunch of clowns. I go get tested. Why, why do you think only two of you uh, showed up? I do not know. I figured the whole building should have showed up. I mean, just to play it safe, I'd have booted everybody out of the building. Go get your ass down there. <laughs> Swedish ended up testing a few dozen people at this building. The next day, they headed to one of Seattle's busiest homeless shelters, the Downtown Emergency Service Center. Daniel Malone is the executive director. He's been bracing for an outbreak in the homeless population and says he's surprised there hasn't been a sign of one yet. He says maybe that's luck, or maybe it just hasn't been caught in the testing. The mobile clinic ends up testing 18 of his shelter residents and staff for COVID-19. But again, only people with symptoms were tested. I called Malone afterward. So they were really only testing people who were sick. I wonder how you feel about that, because at this point, we know now that people are carrying the disease without any symptoms. So yeah, are, are you concerned about that at all? Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it's entirely inadequate. The, the whole testing regime nationwide is inadequate. Yeah, it just feels like we're sitting ducks here where we've got people who have symptoms and other people who don't have symptoms but might already carry the virus. And it's impossible to know, you know, when we're going to get out of that dynamic. Malone's hope is that he can find a way to move all of his shelter residents to hotel and motel rooms where they can be isolated. And it won't matter whether they've been tested or not. That story from KNKX's Will James. We 
heard earlier that one of the ways hospitals are preparing for the surge in COVID-19 patients is by clearing the place out as much as possible, delaying things like elective surgeries. But those measures have costs, too. Elective procedures aren't just facelifts and wart removals. For Allison Krupnik, it meant postponing her cancer surgery. KNKX's Jennifer Wing checked in with her as the situation developed over a couple of weeks and found it's been an emotional roller coaster. Before everyone in Washington state was ordered to stay in their homes, except for going out to get medicine, groceries, or exercise, I met up with Allison Krupnik at her place in Ballard. She was coming off of a really busy couple of days. She and her husband were in the process of figuring out how to bring their two daughters home from college. One goes to school in Los Angeles. The other is abroad in Oxford, England. So there's just been a lot of logistics, you know, college boxes, airline reservations, um, work things. On the home front, the family's beloved tabby cat named Cheeto is in the process of dying from kidney failure. Cat, the cat hasn't eaten for days and he's not, he's also not drinking. I mean, we know how it ends, mm-hmm. so I think yeah. we feel like let him go gently. Yeah. Um, boy, that's nice to see. Cheeto's condition is stressing out his buddy, an adorable little black dog, a Havanese named Kobe. My dog and my cat are really close. We call them the brothers, and so he's been keeping a little vigil. And on top of all of this, Allison was recently diagnosed with early-stage cervical cancer. She had a small tumor removed. Before COVID-19, she was scheduled to have surgery to have a robotic hysterectomy, a fairly simple procedure to take out any possible remaining cancer to make sure it doesn't spread. A few weeks ago, Allison got a call confirming that her surgery was still on for the following Monday. And then on Friday, I was out doing some work, um, and I got a call from my doctor's office saying it's been canceled. And I talked to someone in surgery, and it was really moving. So it was the one and only time that I've cried. I started crying, and I said, wait, I have cancer. At one point, I talked to one of the surgery scheduling nurses. I'm not sure what his position was, and he was really upset. And he said, we've been told, you know, urgent and emergency cases only. Your case feels urgent to me. Let me check in with my supervisor. Then he called me back and he said, you know, my heart just hurts for you, but, you know, this is what we're being told. Again, Allison's cancer is in a very early stage. I did communicate with my doctor yesterday, you know, who you know, both reassured me that I have time to play with and also, you know, reiterated the sobering reality that we see in the newspapers every day, that our hospital systems are strained, overburdened. There are people in much worse straits than I am um, who are also having their procedures deferred, and it's a wait-and-see game. Guidelines on how to support hospitals dealing with the surge of COVID-19 patients are laid out in a recent article put out by the Journal of the National Comprehensive Cancer Care Network. Members of the network include the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, UW Medicine, and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. The article acknowledges the obvious, that under normal circumstances, cancer surgery is not considered elective. The article says that patients currently undergoing treatment for malignant tumors should continue with their care. But the doctors who wrote the piece also go on to say this. Beyond the care of the individual patient, oncology clinicians will face the heavy reality of rationing care. As the pandemic progresses, 
there will come a point when channeling a large amount of resources for an individual patient will be in direct conflict with the greater social good. The article cites a recent study from Wuhan, China, that followed a small group of cancer patients there. It says out of 32 cancer patients who were seriously ill with COVID-19 and who required mechanical ventilation, only one survived. Allison has been reassured that time is on her side. She's been told that she has months, if not a year. But she does worry about her cancer getting worse as she waits to hear when she'll have surgery. I was going to have a simple procedure with a pretty simple recovery and, um, you know, some hope that I was then done with this cancer. It does make me nervous that if I have to wait too long, um, and I don't know what too long really is, you know, then maybe the surgery and the treatment that I'll need will have to be um, more complex and involve uh, greater hardship on my body and greater recuperation. So that's something that I worry about. About a week has passed since Allison and I chatted in her living room with her dog, Kobe, nearby. I checked in with her remotely two days ago. Both of her daughters are home. Cheeto, the family's beloved tabby cat, has died. Overall, Allison is doing okay. But COVID-19 is starting to hit closer to home. Today was the first day that someone I knew was diagnosed or announced that they were diagnosed. I mean, this can happen to all of us. Right before that, I had read that the celebrity chef that I like um, had died. And so I was upset about that. Then I got the news that a former Foreign Service colleague of mine has been diagnosed. And I just was so sad. Allison is now a cheerleader for social distancing in pursuit of flattening the curve. The one clear path that I see that I think, you know, experts see to um, giving us a chance to get a handle on this and free up the resources that are needed for our hospitals to treat not just the um, COVID-19 patients, but others as well. Yeah, and when we can flatten the curve, that means you'll have more clarity for your for when when you can get surgery. Me and other people who are even worse off than me, because I think, you know, anecdotally, I've heard we've gotten to the point where there are people in more acute situations who are also being asked to wait. Yesterday, I got a text from Allison that said this. Just got word, surgery is back on. So, um... Out of the blue today, when I was right in the throes of lots of uh, busyness through work, um, I got a call from my doctor's surgery scheduler saying, hey, guess what? We have a possibility of two surgery dates for you. Which one would you like? I'm very happy for you, Allison. Yeah, let's hope I don't get coronavirus between now and then. You know there's that possibility, right? You need to stay inside. Her surgery is scheduled for April 8th. At this point, it's not completely clear why it's moving forward, but for now, it's on the books. Allison is relieved and grateful that her doctor is making this happen. The procedure is not taking place at Swedish Medical Center as originally planned. Allison is going to be operated on at Evergreen Hospital a facility that has cared for the bulk of the region's COVID-19 cases. She feels a little bit like she's walking into the lion's den, but she trusts her doctor. She's trusting the system. 
That story from KNKX's Jennifer Wing. Hey, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Transmission is produced by the staff of KNKX, including Posey Gruner, Kevin Kniestead, and Jennifer Wing. Thanks to Matt Martinez, Kari Plogue, and Will Stone. Our executive producer is Florangela Davila. We really value your feedback. You can send it to outreach at knkx.org. And if you want, throw a little voice memo recording in there about how the pandemic is changing your life. I'm Gabriel Spitzer. Catch you next time on Transmission.